reading from 1 Thessalonians this morning. So I'll give you time to flick there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the first five verses. One Thessalonians three, verse one to five. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kaylin, for reading God's word to us. Uh, we are in a series looking, um, going through the book of First Thessalonians, exploring how to live holy lives uh, with a future hope. And um, we hope the series has been a blessing to you and continues to be as we do look forward to following Jesus faithfully in this world. Um, I'd love to pray, and um, then we will get into today's text. And, and as we pray, just, it's worth just thinking about what we're actually, when we're praying, we're, we're asking God to do something um, that we're confessing without praying and out asking Him would not happen on its own. So if God doesn't answer our prayer with a yes this morning to God, would we hear your word? We won't hear his word. We might hear words, but we won't hear God's word. And so our prayer, we want to position ourselves to say, God, speak to us through your word. So let's pray now. Gracious God, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your son. We ask this morning that you would speak to us through your precious word. Reveal the glory of your precious son. And that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be formed in the image and likeness of Christ a little more this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question I do want to ask this morning to begin is, um, what if God answered our prayers? What if God answered our prayers? One of the prayers that we prayed last week at our prayer gathering was that God would convert people through the proclamation of the gospel, whether here on Sundays as we gather or through our own lives as we share the gospel with people, we prayed that God would save people, convert people. Bring people from death to life. What if God answered our prayers? Imagine next Sunday, hypothetically, that a, a dozen people responded to the gospel. And we had a dozen new followers of Jesus amongst us here in this congregation. What a joy. And what a responsibility. The question is then, are we ready to disciple those whom God would give us? Are we ready to disciple those who God would save? You see, part of making disciples is not just evangelizing and then baptizing people, but it is teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. We're trying to help people live Christianly. The question I have, and I was thinking, are, are we ready for that? 
More specifically, are we ready to prepare people for the world in which they're being saved out of? That they must live their faith in a world that is hostile to Christianity. Increasingly so, Adam Holland, the CEO for Open Doors, in his most recent report, mentioned that attacks on homes of Christians had spiked 371% in the last year. Now, we may not be facing as severe physical afflictions here, but it is true, we continue to face hostility in a variety of forms as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus. And I suspect that the temperature will continue to rise. So, in order for us to stand firm and the new believers that God would so grant us to stand firm, we need to be strengthened in the gospel. We need to be anchored to something deep if we're not going to be knocked over by the world that we live in. We need to be prepared for affliction, help prepared to help one another follow Jesus faithfully. That's really, I think, what we see in this text this morning. We see Paul's heart for this church in Thessalonica to be strengthened in the gospel. That's his heart. So firstly, we'll look at Paul's heart, and then secondly, we'll look at Timothy's work. Now, to understand Paul's heart for this church to be, to be strengthened in the gospel, first look at the unbearable situation that he's in, an unbearable situation. Verse 1, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. So the therefore connects back to what it is that Paul can no longer bear. Locating us in the, the, the context, we, we know that Paul and his companions came to Thessalonica and they preached over three consecutive Sabbaths. Um, things were going well. However, a riot broke out and they had to leave the, the town in the cloak of night. They head to Berea where the same Jews that stirred up trouble hustled them there and then they moved from, on from Berea, um, Paul heading to Athens, leaving Silas and Timothy behind. Now, whilst Paul is in Athens, Silas and Timothy presumably meet up with him, and they're wanting to get back to those in Thessalonica to see how they're doing, to see whether they're okay, to see whether they're still standing firm, but attempts to get to them were hindered by Satan himself. That's what we saw last week. And so they thought it best to send Timothy to go back, because Timothy presumably didn't have the the legal um, uh, hindrances on him to return to that city, And then we know from the book of Philippians that Silas went to minister in other regions in Macedonia, leaving Paul all alone in Athens. Once Paul heads to Corinth, he's in Corinth where Silas and Timothy return. We see that from Acts 18, 5. And Timothy brings a report of how they're going. So this time of not knowing for, for, for Paul, Silas and for Timothy, for them, was an unbearable situation. The weight of deep love and great concern for these believers. Satan had hindered their efforts. They wondered, had possibly Satan harmed these Christians? For them, the situation was unbearable. Now, before we think, like, what what Paul finds unbearable is, in fact, a sense of feeling overbearing, we'd be, I guess, reminded um, that, that Paul's, this the feeling of feeling unbearable of the great concern and the deep love for them is not like, a, like a, a school teacher wanting to keep track of the kids. This is a deep affectionate love driven by an uncontainable love, uncontainable love. That's really what the word bear means um, 
in this verse. It's a term to describe uh, a ship's hull that was kind of watertight, that water could not get in and the contents could not get out. But in Paul's case, the, the content of his heart began to burst out. He could no longer contain it. He had an uncontainable love. Perhaps you've seen this kind of, um, kind of deep love or concern play out when you just don't know if, if someone's okay. Um, husbands, I don't know if, you, if your wives have ever um, done this before, but I, I recall recently just getting um, a lot of missed calls from Tegan and then messages from Tegan, um, all of which I missed at the moment. Um, hey, Darren, where are you? Hey, Darren, call me back. Are you okay? Have you been in an accident? Is it a car crash? What's going on? And she doesn't know, and she's finding it unbearable not knowing, and she, she's not sure, and so she's got this great concern. She can't contain it. She's reaching out. Meanwhile, Darren and a friend are having a long, great old chat. We're okay. But she doesn't know. For her, it was unbearable. It couldn't be contained. It had to be let out. But this is the heart for Paul. Paul's love, deep love, great concern. But he doesn't know if they're okay. He had to know. That's his uncontainable love. It's what he finds unbearable to not find out how they're doing. Do you know what Paul can contain, though? Paul can contain his comfort levels. Paul can contain having the misery of not having his friends around in ministry. Paul can contain that. Paul can put a lid on his own preferences if that means he can let out his love for this church. He can contain that. But the thing he cannot contain is doing them spiritual good. Paul had to let it out. I think that's really the heart of this love, to seek the spiritual good of others, to encourage them with God's word to get alongside them. I think we, we can do that in our lives as well. We can live out this uncontainable love for others. Simple acts like praying with people after you spend time with them. Time when your paths cross, asking them questions like, where has God been at work in your life? I recently had a conversation um, with, with an old friend and he made this remark. He said, asked him just how his spiritual life was going, how him and his wife were going talking through things. And one of the remarks he said is, oh, well, we just, we kind of do that private faith thing that kind of Baptists do, where you, where you keep your thing to yourself and you don't really kind of share it. And I just thought, I'm not sure what that is, but whatever that is, that ain't Christianity. Christianity is getting to know one another, encouraging one another, hearing how one another do, are going, seeking to do spiritual good to one another. That's what Paul wants for the church in Thessalonica. He's got an unbearable situation. He has an uncontainable love. Whilst it was an unbearable situation, it, it, it wasn't unsurprising. You see that down in verse 4, don't you? For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as has come to pass, and just as you know. So this phrase Paul uses is a prophetic fulfillment, essentially. He's saying, hey, we told you it was going to be hard, and then when hard arrived, you should know that this was part of God's plan. You should recognize that. This is not a sign that, that of God's faithlessness. This is a sign of your faithfulness. Affliction would come. So press on. This was a continual reminder in Paul's preaching whilst he was amongst them. He's reminding them. 
He's telling them time and time again, hey, listen, expect trouble. Verse 4, we kept telling you. Imagine if you got a copy of Paul's sermon notes. Uh, in his points, you, you wouldn't see the, the, a sub-point of affliction and, and suffering. It wasn't like Paul had a first point, announce the forgiveness of, of God through Jesus Christ. Announce the eternal hope that people have with little asterisks. And the little asterisk kind of says, if you get time, mention that it might be a wee bit of suffering. That's not how Paul preached the gospel. That's not the gospel of God. In fact, affliction is to be expected. Opposition is part and parcel of the gospel. Listen, friends, the gospel at the center is what? God dying on a cross. If that's not opposition, I don't know what is. This is part and parcel of the gospel message. And so he kept telling them, kept reminding them. He's up front with them. In fact, one commentator goes so far to say, normality is persecution. A lack of affliction is abnormal. Well, the situation was unbearable, but it wasn't unsurprising. Paul's trying to help this church brace for impact, brace for opposition that comes their way. Can can you see that? I wonder if you know that it's important in the Christian life to to brace for impact, (laughs) to kind of prepare yourself for the opposition that might come your way. We're having a conversation um, with some, some friends the other day, uh, looking at what kind of sports our children might do when they're older, because that's what parents do. We pick out the sports. Um, golf and tennis would bring in the, the money, but we'll see what happens. Um, but we're talking about contact sports, in particular, kind of rugby versus AFL. And, you know, with, with, kind of, with rugby, we're like, ah, oh, well, the contact, that's not good. But there's a sense in which you know where to brace yourself, right? You're kind of just hitting each other front on. That's kind of the goal. You brace yourself. You know when it's coming. AFL is a little bit different. You could be going this way, catch a ball, and someone could tackle you from the side, and you don't brace yourself. It's a bit more dangerous. And then we looked at NFL, and we decided that would not be a wise idea. Let's just get them into books, we said, as, as caring parents. Well, church, as you embrace the gospel, you better brace yourself. You better brace yourself. To truly embrace the gospel is to embrace the kind of potential suffering and affliction that comes along with being a Christian, especially in a world that's hostile to it. Opposition is coming and indeed already here. That's part of the reason why I think the situation for for Paul is so unbearable. He had told them, affliction's going to come. But Paul didn't know, are they still able to stand? Are they going okay? I wonder this morning as a Christian, have have you braced yourself for affliction? Have you prepared yourself for disappointment from others? Have you learned to steady your legs a little when life comes at you, either specifically for being a Christian or more generally with the sufferings in this world? Sadly, I think I've seen many brothers and sisters not brace themselves in the Christian walk. And when suffering has come in its many forms, their faith has simply been toppled over. Knocked over, knocked out. A young adult, after entering the hallways of higher education, engaging with scholars who began to undermine her view of the Scriptures, eventually undermining her own marriage, her own faith in God, temptations came, knocked over, toppled. She hadn't braced herself for impact. 
another pastor unable to reconcile clear biblical teaching and a Christian sexual ethic slipped further away from the Bible and the God of the Bible. Failure to brace. Knocked over. Knocked out. Got a brace for impact. Paul finds the possibility that these believers would be knocked out by the enemy, he finds that unbearable. He just has to know how they are doing. You want to know how concerned Paul is? Paul is willing to face the pains of being alone so that the Thessalonians aren't left alone. That's verse one. Paul says, I rather take the hits so that you don't have to. Timothy, you need to go. You need to find out how they're doing. And I just think it's here that I'm just so struck by the very things that Paul finds unbearable. Isn't it true that what Paul finds unbearable, many of us can find quite tolerable? What Paul finds unbearable, not knowing how other believers are doing, whether they're standing firm, we can find quite tolerable. Believers we may now have seen for weeks, presenting little concern or regard in our mind. Christians perhaps we once knew, slipping away from the faith, what Paul here finds absolutely unbearable, we can find quite tolerable. Are they still standing firm? Are they slipping in the faith? Are they, have they sinned in such a way that shame is so poured out on their heart right now that they, not, they feel like they're unable to gather with God's people? What Paul finds unbearable, we can often just find quite tolerable. Paul challenges us here, I think. Attempts to reach out to them, connect with them. Have they been hindered? And has that caused you to just find unbearable, not knowing how they're doing? I think Paul's heart challenges us not to find tolerable what Paul finds unbearable. They might be hearing that and think, hey, Darren, settle down. This is a bit much. The impression I wouldn't want you to get is like, you call up a friend, it's been two weeks, and you're like, hey, man, are you following Jesus anymore? And they're like, I just took that two-week holiday like I told you. Like we're not, that's not what we're talking about. I, was, I, missed, yeah, I missed one Sunday because I was sick. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about here, if you think this is all a bit too much, you must understand that people's souls are on the line. People's souls are on the line. What is especially true of young Christians is certainly true of all Christians, that without the strengthening and the sustaining Word of God in our life, we are left vulnerable and exposed to the attacks of the enemy. Isn't that Paul's point down there in verse 5? For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul gets personal here. He's moved from the collective we to the personal I. I can't stand this. I can't stand not knowing how you're doing. I need to know. My fear is that all the hard work we put in is gone. And the enemy has come and taken away the word we planted. This idea of this fear of work being in vain, it made me think just um, about our family trampoline. Um, that'll become clearer in just a moment. Um, we moved house uh, early, mid somewhere. Like we moved house last year, and um, we put the trampoline out in the front yard, and it was wonderful. Kids are on the trampoline, everything's great. 
That was until we, you know, experienced the first of the summer storms. Now, being on the top of a hill, it turns out hills are a little bit windier than places that aren't on hills. And so, profound, profound wisdom. And so the storm came and I asked, I wondered, gee, I don't know why Tegan's moved the trampoline down the other side of the, the property. I don't know what that is. And as I, in closer inspection, I saw that this trampoline was now mangled. And of course, all that meant we had to get new poles and had to get new bracings and we eventually got the right stuff and we fixed it up and we thought, aha, you're not going to get me this time wind. We're going to go to the back of the house where it's more protected. And it was for a moment. I said to Tegan, look at that trampoline. The storm is coming and it's holding up. And I kind of whistled my way through the hallway down to the laundry. And I thought, I'll just take another look. Flicked on the outside light. Sure enough, the trampoline. And now apparently the wind changes direction. And now on the other side of the property, mangled and bent up and broken. At that moment, I thought, how, if you could put a price tag on how much you love your kids' entertainment, what could it be? And it was, it was within range. And so we got some new tent poles again, uh, poles, and they arrived, and we fixed it up. And this time, I thought, oh, he's not going to get one over on me. I'm getting the fastening pegs, the fastening pegs that come with the clear instructions does not guarantee we'll be fine in a storm. I was like, that's just for legal ramifications. I secured this thing in, I put it there, and I'm ready to go. This was the week before Christmas. <laughs> that Christmas, with that storm, and on the outskirts of where the tornado came through, I realized that this trampoline was not going to survive. And by realizing it's not going to survive, that was after I had found myself out in the storm with a ratchet strap around the trampoline. Two of the pegs had held, the trampoline was over, and I'm literally holding down this trampoline with a ratchet strap, thinking, what on earth am I doing? All this effort, all this work, it's completely in vain. Why? Well, the end of the day, this trampoline was not secure. It wasn't secure. Paul's fear is that these believers' faith is not secure and that his efforts would be in vain. That's why he sends Timothy. They need to be strengthened. He doesn't want his work to be for nothing. It leads to stand. If that's Paul's heart, look now at Timothy's work. So he sends Timothy. Timothy, as we mentioned before, who's perhaps not constrained by the legal ban imposed by the city officials. You might recall Jason and his household had to, um, take, they had to produce bonds to get Paul out of the city, and so there's certain requirements. That Timothy. Timothy, who had come to faith at Lystra from the faith of his grandmother Lois and mother Eunice. Timothy, who had been entrusted with the gospel and who'd go on to be a pastor in the Ephesus church, church in Ephesus. This is Timothy. This is Paul's faithful companion. This is his apprentice in the, the faith. This is the authoritative minister of God's word. This is Timothy. He may be young, but no one ought to look down upon him. Paul certainly didn't. Notice what Paul is happy to call Timothy, his, his brother. He's like family to him. And he calls him God's co-worker. Oh, that's amazing. Some of you might get to work with important people. Here, Timothy is one of God's co-workers. He says, God's at work in the world, and I'm one of his co-workers. 
It's a remarkable job. Remarkable provision by the Lord. Paul says, this is my brother. This is my co-worker. In the gospel of Christ, verse 2. Friends, this is no errand boy who's passing on a message. This is Paul giving an authoritative minister, sending him to speak God's word, to fulfill God's work in the life of this church. When Paul couldn't go himself, he thought it best to send his best, and so he sends Timothy, verse 2. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. See, in this passage, you see both the necessity of this work that Timothy had to do, and you can see the nature of the work that Timothy had to do. Look first at the necessity. Verse 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. Now, just have, have you noticed how afflictions or oppositions to your faith just has a tendency to knock people about? Some people who get knocked around may get knocked out. So imagine the baker in Thessalonica who, since following Jesus, is no longer attending temple, no longer attending the temple. Because he's no longer attending the temple, the kind of friendship and networks are there that he would have established begin to dwindle. So do the loaves of bread that he is selling. There's economic stress placed on him. There's social stress, feeling isolated. Perhaps Baker begins to consider, is following Jesus really worth it when it's taking this big of a toll and cost in my life? Picture him having conversation with his wife as they ration out what food they have left. She looks at him in his eyes and says, honey, how can we go on like this? They feel shook up by the afflictions. Can you think of a time where your faith has been shaken up? Does anything come to mind of a time where your faith got really rattled? Knocked around? Tested? Perhaps you stood up for Christ in a conversation with someone and their response to you was far from enjoyable? Perhaps you spoke up in a conversation at work a conversation around morality and judgment and people's comments were confronting, saying, surely you don't believe in a God who would judge people? You know, simply talking about a God who holds people accountable to His standard today would not win you money, favorability points with people. Or perhaps you hold to a Christian sexual ethic and your understanding of how the Bible considers and talks about gender places you at odds in your office, perhaps especially during Pride Week. And one previous member of this church expressed um, that she was quite ostracized at her workplace when she expressed concerns over wearing a purple badge in solidarity of LGBTQTI youth. Now, while she shared concerns for people not mistreating one another, she certainly didn't want to communicate that she was affirming of practices that God's word called people to repent of. She felt outcast. Her faith was shaken up. And, and, and this is one of Satan's tactics to apply pressure 
to the convictions and to the hearts of Christians so that they give into temptations and that they would eventually give up on the faith. This is what Paul feared had happened to these new believers. Notice it doesn't say that it did happen. This is just what Paul feared would happen. So to allay that fear, he sends Timothy. Friends, if God answers our prayers, there will be new believers in our church. By God's grace, there will be more by the end of the year than there are currently, and so on as the years go forth. And, and listen, if we don't give our attention to new believers, Satan will. Are we more invested and interested in the spiritual good of new Christians than Satan is? Because he's had centuries at work trying to undermine the faith of Christians. What is particularly true for young Christians is certainly true for all Christians. That Satan has an invested interest in rocking your socks and shipwrecking your faith. Paul fears that'll happen. He doesn't want it to happen. So he sends Timothy. He says, Timothy, would you strengthen them? Would you secure them? There's young people growing up in this church. They have to figure out what is to follow Jesus faithfully. By God's grace, we will be more invested and interested in their lives than Satan would be to help them stand firm. Well, how much attention do these people need? Well, how much temptation are they facing? Give people the, as much as t- attention they need as temptation they're facing. If they're facing temptation daily, they need daily attention. If they're facing temptation weekly, they need weekly attention, getting around one another. And praise God, friends, that God has given us everything we need, His Word, His Spirit, and His church in order to see that His church would be stable and would be secure. So we don't have to go out empty-handed in order to answer this question, how to take care of new believers. How is it that our faith holds up under pressure? How is it that we don't get, even though we get knocked about, we don't get knocked down? Well, it's through the strengthening work of the gospel. We've seen its necessity, now look at its nature. Paul, was, uh, Paul sent Timothy to what? To establish and exhort. Establish and exhort. Look at that word establish. The word esterizo means to plant firmly. It means to, to build something like a city. And when it was used on something that was already built, it kind of means to strengthen or kind of build out. Build out so that's unshakable, that, that it won't move. Think of it as reinforcements that can take the hit. And that word exhort, the word parakaleo, means to come alongside and encourage and exhort and, and comfort. Think of it like a, a lawyer who kind of stands up for you in court. You are on the defensive, the enemy is throwing accusations, and your lawyer, your parakaleo, comes alongside you and speaks up on your behalf. It's a function also of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, to come alongside to comfort, to exhort. Paul has sent Timothy to minister God's word so that God's word would speak up and come alongside them as they're facing temptations from opposition and afflictions. Timothy was come to put courage in them, to find the weak spots in their faith and, and bolster it. 
protect them. Find out where they're weary and call them to press on. To proclaim that the riches of Christ are more precious and more certain than any riches they've left, lost in this world. That their souls are secure for eternity, even whilst their jobs right now may not be. To remind them to leave the false idols where you left them when you came to Christ and follow the true and living God. T Timothy's work is to take the good news of the gospel and start mapping it onto the details of their life, do you see? That's how they'll stand firm. That's how they'll be unshakable. They work the gospel in a little deeper. We know if some say following Jesus is so good, why are things in my life turning out so bad? Again, the Paul Baker and the leather maker in Thessalonica, perhaps falling behind in sales and repayments. They're there trying to console one another. They're, they're, they're trying to put together the pieces. We, we've been given this future hope in Christ, and that future hope is good and wonderful and, and certain, and, and yet how am I to make sense of my present expectations, which is everything but that? Well, they had to adjust their expectations. They had to adjust their expectations to know in serving God in this life does not mean no opposition will come. Now, you must understand, that's very different to the way the Thess church in Thess oh, sorry, the, the kind of beliefs in Thessalonica and indeed the Greco-Roman world played out. You see, in those cultures, when you were, life was going well, you continued to sacrifice to the gods, give them what they want, they then bless you and life goes well for you. And so when you're wanting fertility to go well, you, you sacrifice to the fertility God and the fertility God blesses you back and you bear children. And if you weren't bearing children, if you were struggling with fertility, that was a sign the gods were angry with you. Or if your crops failed, you obviously didn't sacrifice enough. Your God obviously wasn't coming through for you. You need to do more. So imagine these believers facing opposition and affliction, wondering, does this mean that God's angry with me? Does this mean that God hasn't come through for me? No, no, Paul sent Timothy to come supply what was lacking, to teach and exhort, to train them. Hey, don't, don't, don't map on the old beliefs anymore. God's got you secure. But remember, like we told you, afflictions were going to come. This is not a sign of God's faithlessness. This is a sign of your faithfulness. Remain steadfast. Paul reminds them, the path of discipleship is not pain-free. And, and he wanted to come and establish and exhort them in this truth. What is particularly true for new Christians is certainly true for all Christians. Since afflictions can knock us off balance, we need to take the good news of the gospel to reinforce our lives, to stand up to the pressures that come our way. Faithful obedience to God won't grant you an easy passage in this life, will it? There's no hall pass from suffering or opposition or affliction. I'm not trying to paint a pessimistic picture. I'm trying to paint a real picture. The biblical realities of anticipating an affliction. None of us who follow Christ will be excused from the school of hard knocks. Perhaps you'll face dishonor in the staff room. You'll be humiliated in the classroom. You're left out of circle, cir circle of friendships where you once felt like you belonged. You'll stick out more than you want to fit in. Perhaps your children at schools, your children will get bullied. Perhaps you'll struggle. It'll be difficult being a Christian. And whilst you don't go looking for trouble, as you look to Jesus, trouble may find you. 
stand firm, you'll need to be strengthened in the gospel. Now, let me, let me be clear. What I don't want to do this morning is say to you, if you're not experiencing opposition, that means you're being unfaithful. I don't think we can draw a straight line between the fact that someone hasn't keyed your car for being a Christian, that you're in fact not living faithfully. I think we should thank God for the relative peace that we have in this nation, as, we, as Nathan prayed earlier. We should thank God for the relative peace that we do have, and we should make the most of it. And I think making the most of it means not functionally denying what God's Word clearly teaches, that you will be opposed. Opposition will come. (laughs) Suffering and affliction is just part of the Christian's destiny. Do you pick that up in what Paul said in verse 4? He's clear in reminding them that afflictions will come. And part of the exhorting and the uh, encouraging work is to forewarn you about what will come so you can be prepared. So he says, don't be surprised when affliction comes. You saw it yourself when I was with you. He said, we were destined for this. We were destined for this, verse 3. That no one may be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Now, sometimes I like to imagine if Oprah interviewed Paul. So if Oprah interviewed Paul... She might ask him a question like, Paul, what was it like stepping into your destiny? We've heard other stories from other famous people achieving their destiny, embracing their destiny. What was that like for you, Paul? Paul would say, Opes, which is his nickname for her, Opes. He would say, it's been fulfilling. Yeah, it's been a fulfilling destiny. Yeah, I'm just, fu- I'm just fulfilling the sufferings that Christ has prepared for me to walk in. Oh, it's been fulfilling, all right, just as we expected. Oh, there's been joy. No, yeah, of course, there's been so much joy. This is the kind of joy that you can't even put a price on. Oh, there's been jail as well. Yeah, there's been jail. Yeah, there's been jail. Oh, man, there's been the kind of successes that you would not believe or imagine. Oh, but there's been so many sorrows that you could not even count. Oprah, a little perhaps taken back, cuts to an ad break saying, come back next week as we look at someone else who's discovered their destiny. See, part of Paul's destiny, part of the the destiny, so to speak, for every Christian in this world will be you faced afflictions. You will face oppositions. Which then just does raise the question, whilst opposition, a lack of opposition, doesn't necessarily mean you're being unfaithful, isn't it also true that perhaps it also may suggest that we're not being as faithful as we could be? Living as counterculturally as we could be? Still wanting and loving the opinions of others too much? not prepared to stick our neck out, or just not being clear in our announcement, having private views but communicating them publicly in a way that we think will appease and win them over. And sometimes the truth of the gospel just needs to stand on its own and let the chips fall where they fall. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not talking about being foolish or arrogant or brash. 
I'm just talking about being faithfully proclaiming the gospel and living a Christian life. As Paul says, we're destined for this. So on this morning, have you reckoned with the reality that following Jesus is going to be much harder? Part of what Paul's doing here is, is preparing the church in Thessalonica to suffer well. Part of what we're actually doing this morning, and it's probably not a pick-me-up, is preparing you for the day that suffering will be turned up hotter than it is now. Preparing you for that day. Since verse 5 is true, and that the tempter Satan tries to tempt people to abandon the faith, we've got to ask, what form might it take here in Australia? So overseas, physical persecutions seem to be doing their job in some ways. Been pressure on the church, for the true church is producing holiness. In Australia, how does Satan get to work? Well, I think one of the ways that he Satan finds a way in our culture is probably mainly through the propagation of false teaching. If Satan can teach false things through false teachers about God with false promises giving false expectations of how the Christian life ought to look. When those things change, and those expectations by God aren't met, people start questioning God himself rather than the false belief. They start deconstructing their faith. What they really needed to deconstruct and unpack was the false doctrine they were taught. Satan's having a field day. Following Jesus is going to be much harder. Our gospel work must go much deeper. We must help one another faithfully follow Jesus in this world. This makes me think back to the discipling work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, He was, during the the rise of the Nazis, he established a discipleship camp uh, called Finkenwald during the rise of the, the Nazis. And some of his friends were like, Dietrich, brother, you're just going on a bit strong here. Like your discipleship's a bit much. You've got people coming here with you, living here for years, learning and discipling and, and growing. And it's like, this is all a bit much. Could you just settle down? You're a bit too radical. And one day his friend, William uh, ne- ne- Neeson, no, not Will, I was like, ne- Liam Neeson, that's not him. Wilhelm Neasel came to visit, sorry. Will- Neasel came to visit. And he came and he's like, this is all a bit much. And um, Dietrich said, well, come with me. And so they hop in a boat and they row across um, this, this, this lake and then they climb up on this hill and as they get to the top of the hill, he says, look over there. And out in the distance is a Nazi training camp. Listen to how one author describes the scene. German fighter planes were taking off and landing and soldiers moved hurriedly in purposeful patterns like so many ants. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans in training whose disciples were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. You have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. What did Dietrich show him? Looking back at Finkenwald, looking back at the disciples, he says, this needs to be stronger than that. This needs to be stronger than that. Tempter is amongst us. We must resist anything that would cause us to shrink back or step back, be uninformed or misguided in the faith. We need to be established and exhorted with one another, knowing it, strengthening one another in the gospel, 
Acknowledging that faithfulness will be costly, suffering than glory. Friends, isn't this just what Christ showed in his life? Isn't this at the heart of the, the, the gospel of Christ? There's a, there's a God who found our situation unbearable. Not unbearable because he was struggling with it as if he lacked something, but unbearable because he wanted to be close with his people, but his people because of sin were distanced from him spiritually. So he wanted to move closer to his people, first to the tabernacle and then the temple and then through the sending of the Holy Spirit to reside in his people. And he's looking forward one day to that we would see him face to face, be with him for all eternity. He had an uncontainable love. His uncontainable love meant an unrestrained suffering. Jesus, the man of sorrow, a willing sacrifice. Paul, willing to take the pain so that this church would be blessed. Jesus Christ, willing to take the hits so that we would be reconciled with our Father. Left alone on a cross so that we wouldn't be left alone for eternity. The Father wasn't just willing to send the Son for our sake, but the Son was willing to give His life life for our sake. It's the heart of the gospel. This is what motivates us now to go into gear to seek to exhort and encourage one another. To not find tolerable what, what Paul finds unbearable. This is the heart and the motivation for the Christian, the good news of the gospel. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I hope that you could hear the gospel that's announced to you today. The good news that Jesus can forgive your sins. The good news that you don't need to live separated from him, but can be restored to him, in relationship to him. That God didn't contain his love when he sent his son to die for sins. You can turn to him this morning. Churches, the gospel helps us stand firm. By grace, we go deeper into it, day in, day out. And by grace, we help others go deeper into it so they'd be established and exhorted in the faith. If God does answer our prayers and he does save many, will we be ready? By God's grace, we will ready to help others have their hearts in the right place, ready to do the work of encouraging and exhorting one another so it's strengthened and secured in the gospel to the praise of his glory, amen. Amen, let's pray. Father, what glorious work you have done in our lives. I praise you this morning that you have sustained these brothers and sisters here that we have gathered to worship you. We continue to not be knocked out in the faith. Thank you for that your word and your power of your spirit does make us unshakable. Would you help us, help one another, follow you faithfully. We pray for your name's sake. Amen.